Well, welcome to church. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Pastor Pete, and uh, I'm the lead pastor of this church, and just such a great privilege to join together on a cold, wet day like today. Thank you for making the effort to come out. I want to show you a photo. This photo was taken in 1945. It shows three young American preachers who have begun to take the preaching circuit by storm. Now, you've probably, mostly, most people probably have heard of Billy Graham, the famous preacher from the 20th century, arguably the most famous preacher of the 20th century. Uh, who are the other two? Well, let me tell you about them. Chuck Templeton started preaching with Billy Graham at Youth Alive rallies. Um, and actually at the time, in 1945, it was Chuck, not Billy, who was called the most gifted and talented young preacher at the time. Out of him and Billy Graham, most would have picked Chuck Templeton to be the rising star. What about Bron Clifford? Well, Clifford was even more talented. At the age of 25, one author wrote that Bron Clifford touched more lives, influenced more leaders, set more attendance records than any other in American history at the age that he was at. He was tall, he was handsome, intelligent, eloquent, even Hollywood were eyeing him. So you got three guys, Graham, Templeton, Clifford. In 1945, all of these three young men in their 20s came shooting out of the starting blocks like rockets. Well, then why is it that most of us have heard of Billy Graham and not Chuck Templeton or Bron Clifford? You see, just five years later, Chuck Templeton left the ministry uh, to pursue a career as a radio and television commentator, a newspaper columnist. But what's really sad is by 1950, just five years later, he no longer believed in Jesus. Well, 19, by 1954, here's an even more tragic tale. Bron Clifford had lost everything within nine years. He lost his family, he lost his ministry, he lost his health, and then he lost his life. Uh, he left his wife and their two children, and at the age of 35, this once great preacher died an alcoholic in a rundown motel. So you got that in 1945 when this was taken, three young men with extraordinary gifts were preaching the gospel to thousands across America. Within 10 years, only one of them was even still a Christian. It's sad, isn't it? But they're not the only ones, are they? I grew up going to church. I grew up going to youth group. But sadly, many of the people I grew up at church with are no longer followers of Jesus. And you can probably think of many who've also failed to finish as Christians. People who've started off really well, but now are either no longer followers of Jesus or are steadily drifting away. It shows us, doesn't it, that in the Christian life, it's not how you start that matters, it's how you finish. And I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey, but gather from most of you here, you are followers of Jesus, we'll call yourself some of you have been followers of Jesus for a long time, others not for that long. Well, do you want to finish well? I, I hope the answer is yes. Of course we want to finish well. If so, then pay attention to this passage in Philippians. It's very important. Let me pray and then let's get into it. Father God, we really want to finish well. So help us, Lord, today to hear your voice. Convict us and work in us by your Spirit. Help us to follow the right examples and help us ultimately to cling to Jesus who is clinging to us so that we might finish well for His glory. Amen. Now, I want you to know that um, in this section, Paul, the writer of, of the letter to the Philippians, is very, very concerned that they finish well. Um, we didn't read it, but this actually is part of the same section. Chapter 4, verse 1, just the next verse, says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, 
You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should, what? Stand firm in the Lord. All right? How are they going to stand firm? How are they going to finish well? That. So what's the that refer to? Well, it's the verses that we just read before. A bit of context, if you've been with... um, our series through Philippians, especially if you looked at it during community groups this week. Uh, We began in chapter 3, and we have Paul talking about all the things he could have put confidence in. Um, And he was, as you remember, amazing. Like like if Paul was a racehorse, he would have been, you know, the the most, um, the highest pedigree, uh, what's it called? Thoroughbred racehorse, you know? Uh, Because he had this amazing Jewish pedigree. Um, He was a Pharisee. He had done all these things. He had been all these things. As far as Jews were concerned, these are the things that you put confidence in. And Paul says, all of them are rubbish. Literally, he says, all of them are rubbish. Instead, he abandons confidence in any of those things. And he says, in order that I might have Jesus and only Jesus. And then in verses 17 to 18, Paul shows that his example, so the verses that we're looking at, is but one of two examples that Christians can follow. And so you see, the key to finishing strong and standing firm comes with choosing the right example. And so you remember these verses that we read. He says, Join with others in following what? My example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's the other example, right? So we've got, well, we've got, we've got two ways to live, don't we? See, everyone is going to follow one example or the other. And it's not, you know, if you follow an example, it's which one you follow, because everyone is following one or the other. So let's have a look at way one, the first example, the negative one. And Paul says, again, these verses, For as often as I've told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. All right. So this is the first thing about these people, this example, this way. No cross. Now, why did Paul say enemies of the cross of Christ rather than just enemies of Christ. There's actually a really important distinction. I hope you pick that up. You see, Paul is not talking here about atheists or people who are anti-Christian. If he was, he'd be talking about these are people who are enemies of Christ. No, no, he's talking about people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. So these are people, believe it or not, who might sit next to you at church. Sorry, don't literally look next to you at church. I'm not actually targeting them. But um, you know what I mean? Who actually might profess and call themselves followers of Jesus. And you can be someone who calls yourself a follower of Jesus and be an enemy of the cross. So what, what, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that they don't believe in what Jesus did on the cross necessarily, okay? Jesus, what did he do on the cross? We're about to celebrate Good Friday. Um, Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Now, in case you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you can be forgiven because of Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. But it may be that you're here and you're not yet at that point and you're like, no, I still don't quite believe that. There's still things I need to investigate. I'm going to fresh to find out and all that kind of stuff. Well, by the way, if if that's you and you don't yet believe in the cross of Jesus, it doesn't make you an enemy of the cross because that's not what Paul is talking about here. So what does it mean? Paul means if you claim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, 
And yet you live your life in a way that's inconsistent with the cross. That's what he means. You can claim to be a Christian, but live in a way that's inconsistent with the cross. If you remember, Pastor Dom, he spoke to us at the first Philippian sermon. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the good news? Right? Remember, it was all about living your life in balance. We've got the good news of Jesus on one side. Is your life in balance with that? Living your life worthy of that? Well, it's the same kind of idea here. Do you live your life worthy of the cross of Jesus? You see, the cross is not just the way of salvation. It actually, for the Christian, is the pattern of life. You Remember, Jesus says, if you want to come after me... If you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to what? Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is saying he does something with the cross that's supposed to be a pattern of life for us. And this is what he did. At his temptation in the desert for 40 days, Jesus was tempted to bypass the cross and go straight to glory. But unless Jesus dies, there would be no glory for him and no hope for us. Right? Jesus must go through the cross. And to follow Jesus means the same thing. And so we looked at um, in, in, in the beginning of chapter three again, if you're part of community groups, how basically the Christian life can be defined as life in Jesus or life with Jesus. There's a union with Jesus and not just you know, Jesus did these things and I just keep them external to me. Remember what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10. You might want to look at it. He says, I want to know Christ. How deeply know Christ? I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. The Christian wants to live a life that's patterned on Jesus so closely that you die with Jesus and you rise with Jesus. Okay, you see, Jesus' death and resurrection becomes a pattern of life for his followers. And that's what it means, right, to be a follower of Jesus. It also explains what it means to be an enemy of the cross. You say you want to follow Jesus, and yet you're unwilling to walk the pattern of the cross. And then he goes on and gives more details in verse 19. And actually, understanding it in light of the cross or being an enemy of the cross helps you understand what he means when he says their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and their mind is on earthly things. So there's three things, their appetites, glory, and minds. The first one, their God is their stomach. I don't know if you read just this week in Taiwan, country of my, my home country, um, this restaurant, this Japanese restaurant was offering unlimited sushi for anyone whose name contained the Chinese word salmon in it. And I think they did that because it's like, who's going to have the salmon in their name? What kind of idiot parent names their kids salmon, right? But you can, did you read about, maybe you can guess what a whole bunch of people did. That's right, because they're cheap Asians and they want free food. What did they do? They went and changed their name to have salmon in it. So the whole office of the name-changing office, whatever, all of a sudden was inundated with dozens of applications for people changing their jolly names to salmon. So they can go with their ID card and get free sushi. Classic. Their God is their stomach. <laughs> yeah. But it's more than just that. It's more than just food, right? That's not exactly what he means. It may be food, but it means to let any appetite, any appetite for anything, 
letting that rule you. Your God is your stomach. And that, again, remember, see it through the light of the cross. That is completely opposite to the cross. What's the cross all about? The cross of Jesus is about denying yourself, saying no to yourself, denying appetites, denying your right to be happy now because there's a greater joy in the future. That's the cross, isn't it? I mean, Jesus' temptation, again, let's come to that, 40 days in the desert. Satan came with three temptations. Each one was a temptation to his appetites. The first one for food. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. The second, right, was a temptation, the appetite of security and affirmation. Didn't God say this, that he'll rescue you? Well, test God's promises. And the third was an appetite for self-glory. If you worship me, all of this can be yours, all right? Jesus was tempted to satisfy his appetites now rather than go the way of the cross. And of course, thank God he didn't do that. And the second one, glory. Right? Your glory in your shame. What that means is you, you're not only doing what's shameful and bad, you actually delight in it, you revel in it, you boast in it. Now, you can probably think about lots of examples out there where that is the case, where things that are really um, harmful and shameful, that our world just says it's great and celebrates it. But again, I think we want to go a bit deeper into how it might affect us. Remember the cross, what the cross does, and we looked at this particularly um, last year when we looked at the book of 2 Corinthians. You remember that the, the world's idea of glory and power and honor gets inverted, gets turned upside down by the cross. In other words, the cross shows us what is truly glorious and what is truly shameful. And it's often completely opposite to what the world considers glory and shame. Um, for, for one, the, the cross, the crucifixion, as a method of dying in the ancient world was the ultimate shame. But it becomes the ultimate glory for God's people, for Jesus right? Shame is turned upside down because as far as God's concerned, there is glory in sacrifice. There is glory in humility. There's glory in obedience. There's glory in surrender. And that's all the things that Jesus did, even though the world would consider the cross to be so shameful. Now you contrast that with what's in our culture today. We glory in self-gratification, we glory in living how I want as whoever I define myself to be. As long as I'm being authentic, then it's okay. We glory in exercising power by what? Being a bully or by silencing others. Now, in light of the world, that's glory. But in light of the cross, that's all shameful, isn't it? And then thirdly, your mind is set on earthly things. If your mind is set on the cross, you, you're not thinking about earthly things. I mean, Jesus, when he set his mind on the cross, he's thinking, Hebrews says, right? He set his mind on the cross for the joy set out before him, right? And it's not the joy in the here and now. If Jesus wanted to think about the joy in the here and now, earthly things, he would not have endured the cross, all right? So the opposite of the cross is your mindset on earthly things. You're only thinking about temporary satisfaction. So no cross, and no cross leads to no hope. Because as he says right in, the, right in that verse, uh, before you know, that God is their stomach, verse 17, their destiny is 
destruction. You see, hope is much more than just a state of mind. Right? I'm not saying that if you're not a follower of Jesus, you live a hopeless life in that you always feel hopeless. No, no, no. Hope isn't just about a state of mind. In the Bible, it's actually about the direction that your life is going towards. Hope has to do with destiny. And the sobering fact that the Bible presents is that the world's destiny is destruction. The world is set for judgment day. Which means we can either invest in this world and be destroyed along with it, or we can die to this world and come out on the other end resurrected in God's new world. Which then leads us to way number two, which is the way we want to follow if we want to live good news lives and finish well. Look at the contrast. But our citizenship is where? In heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring all things under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they become like His glorious body. The only pattern worth following is the one that leads to true glory, the glory of the resurrection. And that's why verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. But how do you get there again? The pattern To glory has got to be through what? The cross. First cross, then hope. First death, then resurrection. So way number two is living in sync with, worthy of, in balance with the cross, rather than being an enemy of the cross. Which means it's the complete opposite to your God is your stomach, your glory is your shame, your mind is on earthly things. Because the cross shows us That there's something worth saying no to in the here and now for greater joys. There's something worth enduring for. There's something worth dying for. There's things worth not having. That there's joy in sacrifice. That there's glory in humility. That there's power in obedience and service and trust. That's the cross-shaped life. And if you live a cross-shaped way, you will have, secondly, true hope. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Bit of background, when he writes this to the people of Philippi, it was very meaningful to them, the the idea of citizenship, because Philippi um, was a very special little city in that it was a special colony of Rome and has been since 27 BCE. Citizens of Philippi were considered full citizens of Rome. Roman citizenship was very coveted and it wasn't easy to get, all right? But citizens of Philippi were made full citizens of Rome, which meant that this was a city that had a lot of civic pride. They were very, very pro-citizenship in Rome. And so when Paul says, your citizenship is in heaven, he's really you know, taking up that idea of citizenship. But he wants to say, look, your citizenship is not even in Rome, ultimately. Not in this world. It's for another world. Um, I don't know if you know of any uh, stranded Aussies during COVID. You know, a lot of Aussies um, go and live uh, and work overseas, particularly the UK or Europe. That seems to be a really popular place. And I've got a lot of friends there who were ve- are very settled. Um, they've got jobs there. They've started a life there. But it was COVID that really brought home their homesickness. They, they still considered themselves at the end of the day, Australian, and not being able to get back here kind of made their homesickness even stronger. Do you know people like that? I do. 
because their true citizenship, even if they've been away for decades, their true citizenship is Australia. And that's what it is like to live as a citizen of heaven. That your true citizenship, where you consider really home, is not in the here and now. Now, here I need to clarify something because most of us, when we think of the word heaven, we think of the place you go when you die. Or as you know, some, someone once says, it's the pie in the sky when you die. But here, heaven, and in fact, a lot of the times in the Bible, heaven is not primarily referring to the place you go where you die. I mean, it is the place you go where you die, but that's not ultimately what makes it meaningful. Heaven stands for the new world order that God has already set up. And he set it up through Jesus, who is the king of this new world order. Jesus who reigns in heaven now. Jesus who will come back from heaven, right, to make this new world order true of the whole earth, and so everything will be renewed in the new creation. But the point is, heaven isn't just the place you go where you die. Heaven is the place where Jesus is, where he rules, where he reigns. It's the new world order, the kingdom of God, so to speak. So our ultimate hope isn't just to escape earth to go to heaven when we die, but actually for heaven to be brought down to earth to transform and renew it. That's the ultimate hope of the Bible. Now, you might be thinking, why is this important? Aren't we just quibbling about destination, uh, definitions? I'll tell you why this is important. It's important because I think a lot of Christians have such a tough time thinking about living as citizens of heaven because they're only thinking of heaven as the place I go when, we, when I die. So heaven is just a future reality. Heaven seems so far away. And so how can I you know, live for that which may be decades away? And because we keep thinking of heaven as the pie in the sky when you die, rather than the actual kingdom of God, which because of Jesus exists now in another dimension, but because it is existing now by the Holy Spirit, this actually, this heavenly reality continues to impact our world through us, through the church today. It's a now reality, right, brought home any time God's people live and worship and live out life under Jesus' rule. It's actually a present reality. That's what we're citizens of, this other world, this other reign, this other kingdom, right? And it's so much easier to live as though this world is all there is when we think of heaven just as something that will happen when I die. But when you understand that heaven is a now reality that you can experience and you can be a mediator of, of then, then all of a sudden to live as a citizen of heaven actually impacts everything you do now. Because you can taste heaven and you can release heaven's reality in the way you speak, in the way you live, in the way you work, in the way you act, right? And once you do, you'll know that there's nothing quite like it. And so that's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Even though I'm a citizen here on earth, ultimately my home, my true citizenship is in, another, in this other realm where Jesus is ruling and reigning. So what is your way? As I said, it's easy when you read these passages to think of, okay, the God is their stomach, the glory is in the shame. You can only think about the people out there. This is not us. And that would be a problem. One of the problems is because if, you know, when we're only pointing the finger out there, we think we're exempt from this. 
But there's a reason why Paul says in verse 18 that he reminds them again and even with tears. Why would he be so concerned even to have tears over the lives of the Philippians if this was only going to be a threat out there? Of course, it's only because he knows that this way of living is very much a pattern that can go on in here, within the church. It's the kind of living that infiltrates churches like ours. And so I need to ask you, what is your pattern of life? Is it cross-shaped? Or is it world-shaped? And I like to apply it in terms of verse 19, again, with appetites, with glory, with minds. So first, the appetites. What do you do with your appetites? Are you a slave to your desires? Food, maybe. Maybe sex. Material things. Comfort. Experiences. Now, you're going to know they're not all bad, are they? Some of them are really good. Food is a great gift from God. Comfort, travel experiences, sex within marriage, they're all great gifts from God. But they're just not ultimate, right? They're great servants, but they make terrible masters. And so how do you cope with your appetites? Do you find that whenever you have a need of something, you immediately go to it and quickly get a fix? Do you ever, have you ever thought of denying an appetite? That's so countercultural, isn't it? Our world is all about satisfying our appetites, being true to yourself by satisfying your appetites. And so it's no wonder that of all the ages, the, 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 uh, the modern day, the 20th and 21st century, are times when Christians have done the least amount of the spiritual discipline that they've done for the first 1900 years, which is called fasting. I find it really hard to fast, even trying to do it during Lent. But do you know that Christians have fasted and used it as a spiritual discipline since the very beginning? Now, this is not a command to fast, not at all. But I'm just telling you that fasting is one of the ways that Christians have traditionally helped themselves think about denying appetites. And fasting teaches you a couple of things about your appetites. Let me just give you... By the way, I don't fast that often, okay? Lent is one of those times in the year where I do. But I've learned a couple of things about our appetites just through the experience of, of, of self-denial of fasting. First thing is that appetites are actually linked, right? Fasting exposes just how much not having one thing can actually make us desire for other things. Or having one thing can actually make us actually less disciplined about having other things. And what I mean is this. Someone who is undisciplined about one particular appetite, maybe it's food, maybe it's buying stuff, stuff that, we, you know, wanting to eat lots of food, being undisciplined about that, uh, wanting to buy lots of stuff, being undisciplined about spending money and shopping, that doesn't seem that, that scary or that doesn't seem that bad, all right? But do you know that one appetite is often linked to another? So someone undisciplined about food or buying stuff may also tend to be undisciplined about other appetites because it creates habits. When I feel a need for something, I immediately go and meet it with food, with shopping, right? That gets carried over when it comes to sex, when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to anger. When it, do you see what I mean? Appetites are linked and fasting exposes that. One of the things that happens in fasting is I'm fasting from one thing and it's often food-related, all of a sudden, during the time I'm fasting, I feel even more stronger temptation for all these other appetites, right? And, and some of these other appetites that are actually really, really destructive. It just kind of all comes together at once because that's what appetites are like. 
The second thing that fasting exposes about appetites is this. You can only replace them, you can't destroy them. You can only replace appetites, not destroy them. And that's why someone who's like let go of an addiction in one thing can often pick up an addiction in another thing, just as destructive, perhaps even more. And so the key is to let your appetite for God, for heavenly things, satisfy you more than earthly things. If you just go cold turkey for one thing without drawing enjoyment from God who only ultimately satisfies, you will just replace one addiction with another, one appetite with another. And so if you are into fasting, if you do try fasting, please, it only works if you're trying to let the hunger, the physical hunger, direct you to seek satisfaction in God. That's when it's actually helpful. Don't fast for the sake of fasting. Fasting doesn't make you more super spiritual, doesn't make you closer to God, all those kind of things. But it can teach us about hunger for God. All right, but that's the first thing about appetites. What do you do with that? Number two, glory. Where is your glory placed? Or put it another way, what do you take the most pride in? I mean, what is it that if you had that, you would think, yes, now my life is a little bit more complete, right? What is the that for you? Because that's what you have glory in. Gross generalization, but for many men in particular, the thing that really tickles us is being important. We glory in being important. And so we express it in things like career and work and even hobbies. But for many women, again, gross generalization, but for many women, it's particularly about glory in being loved, for men being important, for women being loved, and so expressed in relationships, in marriage, in kids. Now, you might be thinking, what's wrong with this? Nothing seems wrong with that, right? Well, again, nothing in and of itself. But it's when you make it your ultimate glory. When you make it replace God that things go wrong. And your ultimate glory becomes your substitute God and it's what you would sacrifice anything for. And I'm sure you don't have to think very hard to think of those who have sacrificed everything to further their career. They've sacrificed their family, their health, their relationship with God. Or do you know people who have made relationships so ultimate? They've compromised so much for that boyfriend or girlfriend, for the husband or wife, only to be devastated when these relationships fail or disappoint. Or you might know of parents who've made their world so revolve around their families, only to have their identity tied up with their children's successes and failures, or to have become really codependent on their children, that is, codependent, I need to be needed, I need to be loved. And then, of course, their children eventually pull away because it's just too suffocating and the parents are destroyed in the process because you make any, your glory anything other than God ultimately, whether it's being important or being loved or anything else, it's only going to disappoint you. So where is your glory placed? And lastly, your mind. There's a quote that goes like this, your true religion is what you do with your solitude. Your true religion is what you do when you're all alone with your solitude. So what, what do you think about? What do you dream about? What do you mostly make plans about? What does your mind fill with when you have nothing else to think about? How do I further my career? 
How do I earn more money? How do I buy a property? How do I find the perfect partner? How do I get more into my hobby? How do I make sure my kids are successful? How do I get the perfect retirement? How do I have the perfect travel experience? What is it? How do you complete that? What is it that your mind fills with, dreams about? Because remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, your citizenship is in heaven. Right? This earth, we're just passing through. And so instead, we, we need to be helping our minds have a heavenly kingdom mindset. And remember, heaven's not just a place you go where you die. Heaven is that reality now where Jesus reigns and wants to impact this world. So if I change my mind about the way I think about money and material things, I now see that I'm a steward, not an owner of these things that God gives me. I don't own it. I don't take it with me. I'm here to use it to bless others with it. If I set my mind to think about opportunities or gifts or talents or education or the job I have, if I think about it in a heavenly mindset, I realize that all of these things God gives me, not that I can be selfish, but so that I can bless others and give them a taste of heaven. Or my marriage and my kids. Well, that's not primarily so that I can live out my life through their successes and their studies or their careers. No, 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 no. It's so that we as a family can leave a legacy for Jesus. And so my children's love for Jesus is so much more important than how worldly successful they are. What about my mindset when it comes to singleness? When it comes to retirement? Well, if you're single, if you're close to retirement, guess what? You have what a lot of others sitting around you don't have. You will have the time, the money, and if you're retiring, the life experience that you can now generously dispense to others if you have a kingdom mindset, if your citizenship is in heaven. Billy Graham died in 2018, age 99. By the time he stopped preaching publicly, he had been doing it for over 70 years, that's most, longer than most people live. 70 years. Over 2 billion people heard him preach. 2 billion. Over 2 million made decisions to follow Jesus from hearing him preach. Now, before he died, he wrote one last column for the papers, and it was published on the day of his death. And so the day he died, the newspaper published these words. By the time you read this, I will be in heaven... And as I write this, I'm looking forward with great anticipation to the day when I will be in God's presence forever. But I won't be in heaven because I've preached to large crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. No, I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. You can probably tell that Billy Graham is one of my heroes. And it's not because he had such a huge influence, preached to billions. He's one of my heroes, and it's reflected in the words he said. One of my heroes because at the end of his life, he still believed what he believed at the beginning. And when others have come and gone, he stayed faithful to the good news of Jesus. His life, his ministry, his marriage, until Jesus called him home. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm.
in the Lord, dear friends. Let's get ready to sing. Let's pray. Father, may your words from Philippians today help us long to be even more citizens of heaven, the heavenly reality that Jesus is king, that Jesus is coming back to bring heaven to earth, that we can actually make such a difference in our world by living countercultural lives. So help us, Father. We long to be a church where we help each other through you to finish well, to stand firm to live good news lives for your glory. Amen.